Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. He said Britain is just a small island that no one pays attention to. A former colony won the right to determine its own destiny. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where normally we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. But uh, this is one of our different shows. This is where we um, we go to our correspondent, our, our man from abroad. I am Royful Brown, who's stuck in the middle of the UK. And today we are joined by our foreign correspondent, Tim Marshall, with no clowns to the left of him or jokers to the right. How are you, Tim? Never better. Thank you very much. Are you sure? Because um, you've been a little poorly under the weather recently. Yeah, look, people don't want to know about my chest issues. Um, but to get it off my chest, yes, I've had pneumonia again. Um, but moving on. Well, but you are a testament to the strength of one of our venerable UK institutions, the British Health System, though, aren't you? Uh, they did a good job um, this time. Um, oh. Not so good a job last time. But um, why are we talking about this? So listen, it, it, you know that the closest thing the British have to religion is the National Health Service. Well, I'm absolutely. Not, I'm not and that, and, it, um, and, it, it was and it's 70 this year. And it is one of the key glues to this wonderful nation. But in a week that has seen France beat Croatia 4-2 to lift the World Cup, we ask, it, has this World Cup been Putin's biggest triumph to date? Police on patrol. It's business as usual in Moscow, but this World Cup has seen plenty of changes. Gatherings aren't usually allowed here, yet people are celebrating anyway. The police keep everyone safe, but they're restraining themselves and aren't getting involved. We're always prepared to help the tourists. You can see that everyone is in a celebratory mood. The fans are so enthusiastic. I'm really enjoying this atmosphere. Russians and foreigners coming together on Red Square, a carnival of nations, so to say, while the police look on. Uh, Tim, uh, there were fears, which it has to be said that in an earlier podcast you did scotch, 
that this World Cup would be racked by hooliganism, racism and on various levels of unpleasantness. But instead, travellers to Russia in 2018 are being confronted by smiles, street parties and have learnt not to define a people by its politicians. So could this World Cup team be as an effective way of disrupting our perceptions of Russia as the FSB's campaign to disrupt the US election in 2016? Yes, insofar as soft power matters and your perception of a country and and public opinion uh, is formed through many, many ways. And yet one of them is all the reports that came back from Russia about how well the fans were being treated, how open the Russians were, how welcoming they were. I, I think that's gone a long way in this country, for example, where there is a fairly hostile view of the Russian leadership that, you know, yeah, you don't confuse the two things. And so, I mean, you know, it's hardly Putin's greatest triumph. I mean, uh, you know, when you put it up against, I don't know, annexing Crimea or launching themselves back on the world stage in the Middle East in Syria. But as far as soft power is concerned, they pulled off a brilliant month. Uh, very, very little negativity about it. And there was there was a few minor skirmishes and none of them involved any Russian fans as far as I know. One of the things which observers are looking at was the fact that Russians could actually get out into the streets and wave flags um, and have impromptu street parties. Do you think this is something going forward which actually could help to change that change the aspect of Russian society whereby if a couple of Russians want to gather, they've got to get a police permit? No. Um, again, this goes back to the soft power image that you want to project to the world. Um, it'll be back to normal very, very quickly when it gets back to hard politics and, and being re-elected and w- who can demonstrate about what. So no, I, I don't think so. But um, they did pull it off. They did prove that the Russian people are as nice as anybody anywhere else. Um, it was a political success for Russia. Um, and, you know, and, and well done to them. I mean, I know that, you know, the, the political side is that the politicians will always use something like this. But it's also genuine in that, you know, you can't make a people be nice. You know, they simply were nice. So let's look at Russia in 2018, Tim. It's had this World Cup. It's been seen as a triumph. And you and I both love the beautiful game. And it has to be said, this is definitely from my memory. My memory goes back to the World Cup of 78, the best World Cup in terms of just entertainment value. Um, Today, as we're speaking, literally as we're speaking, uh, Putin uh, is in Helsinki with Donald Trump, the US president. What do the Russians hope to gain from this uh, powwow with Trump? I think they've already gained it, and that was the meeting. That's what the Russians wanted out of it. (laughs) Uh, A meeting of equals, um, resetting the, the relationship, looks terrific uh, for Putin. Um, They probably would have tried to get one or two things out of President Trump. But to my understanding of of the press conference, the bit that I saw, there were clearly no major announcements. This is part of a process now, part of the headlines that both leaders want. There was nothing substantial that, that came out, unless there's something behind the scenes. I mean, for example, they could have announced an agreement whereby uh, Russia would agree they will persuade the Iranians to keep away from the Israeli border 
uh, in return, the American troops will not approach areas in Syria controlled by Russia. You know, th- things like that would have been pretty easy, but they couldn't even come out with that. So I don't think there's any breakthroughs. But what they have done is started the dialogue. Some people say that there shouldn't have been a dialogue because you've rewarded the man who invaded Crimea, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, I think if you framed this differently, if, you, if it was Mr. Obama that had suggested they needed to talk, people would say, yes, talking is better than arguing. And I think it's only because it, it's, it's Trump and so many people have a, such a visceral dislike of him that it was framed that, you know, he's an idiot going into the in, into the lion's den. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying he's uh, anywhere near as clever as Putin, but I do think that it is better for them to have a relationship than not have a relationship. But it's not just the fact that um, he's going into the lion's den per se, is it? It's also the people why the reason why some people, a lot of people, are worried about this is because of the ongoing rumours of, if not collusion definitely with Russian interference with the American election. And then, as you kind of hinted at, there is the fact that we that Trump does actually want to forget about the annexation of Crimea, mm-hmm. or at least normalise it. Yes, no, you're absolutely right that they win by this normalisation of, of the relationship, whereas you could have had a standoff, extra sanctions, non-recognition, etc. He hasn't recognised the annexation of of, uh, of the Crimea, nor did he go out of his way in the press conference to condemn it. So, yeah, I, I understand the criticism. It's just that after four years, um, it's time, I think, to have a dialogue with the power in the world that has as many nuclear weapons as does the United States, and they've agreed that they might try to have a new process of, of disarming. Yes, it gives him the world platform. Yeah, I mean, Novichok, as far as we know, wasn't mentioned. And as you know, there's been this attack in the UK, which is blamed upon Russia, uh, poisoning uh, people with a nerve agent. Uh, Yes, Crimea was annexed. Yes, the Russians clearly have uh, involved themselves in the US election. Uh, I think the intelligence services have now named 12 GRU agents that were involved in hacking into the Democratic Party's uh, systems. All that has happened. Putin has denied it yet again. But I still don't think that means you don't have a dialogue. You know, we've had dialogues with all sorts of people uh, down the years that we didn't agree with. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. For 60 years, Crimea, a strategically important peninsula in the Black Sea, has been a part of Ukraine. After the pro-European revolution toppled President Yanukovych in February, the majority ethnic Russian population, with the help of Russian soldiers, took control of the region. An illegal referendum on whether to join Russia or not was held shortly after, and the next day Russia annexed the peninsula in a move widely condemned by the international community. On May the 9th, Russia and Ukraine celebrate Victory Day, which commemorates the Soviet victory over Nazi Germany in World War II. This year, with Russian President Vladimir Putin making an appearance and Russian power and pageantry on show, the parade in Sevastopol acted as a transparent and symbolic show of force. Okay, so let's look at the specific countries who are maybe the post-Soviet states and their relationship to, to Putin's Russia. The annexation of Crimea obviously had a direct uh, effect on Ukraine. This was Ukrainian territory yes. and it was wrenched away from them. And we still have Russian troops, or at least Russian-backed separatist troops in the eastern Ukraine. Uh, initially, when the Ukraine became independent, we said, we being NATO, said, give up your nuclear weapons and we will guarantee your borders if you do that. Where does that leave NATO forward slash the West and Ukraine? Uh, weaker in that uh, we did not live up to that, uh, what was pretty much a, a verbal agreement, non-binding. That you know, we, we never actually said we will definitely go to war. We signed a piece of paper if Russia ever does anything. Uh, the Ukraine now is in the middle, continuing in the middle of this tug of war between the two. You, I mean, the Crimea, it, it's it, it, not de jure, but de facto now is part of Russia. But Russia did annex it illegally. Putin points out that the majority of the people in Crimea are A, Russian-speaking, and B, do support being annexed. But that doesn't make it okay because it is it is a sovereign part, legally, of another country which his troops simply marched in and took. And if, if you allow that sort of thing to stand, then you are not upholding the international rule of law, and they do appear to have got away with it. I still come back to the point that you still need to talk to these people, even if you hopefully say pretty tough things to them. On the wider issue, NATO is seriously damaged, again by Trump, threatening to pull out. I don't think he's going to. I think he's threatening to pull out of it simply to try and make sure everybody pays uh, more money into it because the Americans do carry the financial burden, almost all of it. And why should they uh, carry such a massive financial burden when there's 27 other partners for them? You know, the, the Americans do have a point on this. I don't think that point is is worth risking the entire alliance, which I, I think Tim, Trump, Tim, Trump Tim, might do. Look, uh, let, let me just jump in on this point because I'm, I'm going to lose the thread otherwise. Um, report I read last week, and I forget where I read it, 
basically said that the US troops in were based in Europe, so primarily in Germany, mm-hmm. um, that in effect they are bankrolled by those countries and that actually uh, the Americans are cash positive with their troops in Europe. So the whole argument of the contribution of Western uh, states to NATO, to NATO sorry, isn't just as simple as the Germans don't do don't do 2%, etc. That actually and this whole notion of Trump saying that we are carrying the can and saying our troops are everywhere, actually Europe pays net for American troops to be on its soil. Uh, I don't agree with your maths, especially when it comes to the hardware uh, of, of the ships, the missiles and the firepower. Uh, I do accept that, yes, uh, the Germans do pay the United States. Poland uh, pays the United States for troops to be there and, in fact, wants more and is prepared to pay more. But if you look at the overall defence budget of who carries the burden of the NATO forces, it is the United States. They put more into of their GDP into NATO than does anybody else. And most of the NATO countries do not meet what is supposed to be the minimum requirement of 2% of the GDP. They clearly don't pay enough and they have clearly, happily, been living off the back of this American commitment to Europe for the past 70 years, 60 years, 60, 70 years. Now, I, I, I would agree that America, it is in America's interest to be in Europe as part of NATO because American international policy wants to ensure that no one power, massive power, rises on the European continent, dominates all the others, and then is in competition with America. That's one of the reasons why they're there. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, I, I just don't accept your maths. Troop, housing troops is a relatively small cost compared to the, the overall budget spend and America uh we couldn't do it without them, but we could do more. Okay. It wasn't my maths. I'm just parroting something which I read yeah. somewhere before. Well, no, and no, no, no. I... There is a genuine point there, Royville, a genuine point. Oh, okay. But Thank... overall, I don't, think it's, I don't think it stacks up. All right. And, and obviously, the other reason for America to be in Europe isn't just to uh, keep a wary eye on a new power rising, let's keep Germany down, but is to keep Europe stable and to keep... Uh, market stable so America can sell its stuff all over the world and uh, and so we so America through the Marshall Plan obviously mm-hmm. some forebear of yours uh, could then uh, prop up Europe so that America so that Europe then could buy American goods and in effect that is the post-world settlement yep um, that's pretty much it. Um, those are the two main reasons. One, stabilise the democracies and get their economies back up and uh, trade with them. Continue to have uh, prosperity uh, and safety. And then the other bit about no one power, i.e. Russia, dominating the entire continent and then being in competition. Um, what's wrong with that? Uh, not much, but there are countries that are falling in between the cracks, aren't there? i.e. Moldova. So there is a kind of Russian-backed breakaway province, uh, Transdinestra. Mm-hmm. Um, do we just let situations like that slide? Well, what would you do about it? Are we just to say it's part of the Russian sphere of influence? Yeah. There is nothing that we can do and no, say no, about it. Because you would abandon Trump... our plucky little 
uh, fledgling democratic Moldovans to the evil Russian bear, would you? <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm asking the question because one thing Donald Trump isn't doing uh, whilst he's meeting uh, Putin is saying that as the bastion of democracy that America is concerned yeah. about uh, the, the, the integrity of Moldova. He, he, he doesn't care a jot, does he? And it doesn't raise um, one column inch on any Western uh, bit of foreign news. It does not at all. Uh, I am a, a fan, not a fan. Um, I understand the requirement sometimes for hypocrisy in international diplomacy. And it has been hypocrisy for some time that the Western countries will talk about uh, the right of the Moldovan people, etc., etc. Because at least then you put up this facade of saying, this is what we believe and we think this is how the world should be. And I do actually think that, although that's sometimes hypocritical in that then you you frequently and usually sell out uh, when push comes to shove, or you go to war, often there's the sellout. I mean, we're digressing, but the Kurds are an example. You support them, you support them, you support them when you need them. And then finally you throw them under the bus and all the fine words you said about Kurds and Kurdistan amounts to nothing when the big power politics comes in. Ditto with Moldova. But I do like and support and understand that hypocrisy because you need to at least draw some lines that are then tested. What Mr. Trump appears to be doing is giving the nod and a wink to Mr. Putin and says, you know what, it's your backyard, I don't really care. I don't think that's helpful to places like the Baltic states, and it's even less helpful to places like Moldova that are not inside NATO. So yeah, I think that's a deeply negative trait uh, of the American president. I think he accepts openly the spheres of influence. Just whilst we're on the Baltic states, um, I forget exactly the year, I'm going to say circa 2010, the uh, the Russian state enacted a cyber attack against Estonia. That's right, yeah. Which was, and still is, a, a NATO member. What sanction did we give Russia for that? Um, I think there was some very small ones within the EU, but not, um, I mean, Estonia's a NATO member, but I think it was dealt with at an EU level because it's also in the uh, EU. There have been sanctions against Russia for Ukraine, for the annexation of Crimea in Ukraine. Uh, there have been sanctions, I think very low-level ones, for cyber. Um, but that was that should have been a real wake-up call because that was a, a major, major cyber attack. And I think people in, in the business of IT and warfare uh, did understand just how important this was. I don't think the general public is still aware of, of the... About how bad cyber attacks could be, the fact that there aren't any treaties at the moment uh, which spell out, okay, we agree we won't do this and we won't do that. Uh, and again, as a sidebar, I don't think the general publics are aware of the dangers of um, chemical warfare either. And I think the Novichok attack on people in the United Kingdom uh, should have been a wake up call that. Um, People have these stocks and they're prepared to use them. One thing which you can definitely characterise about um, Russia and its um, offensive capabilities, that it seems to me that the GRU 
or the FSB, I don't know which uh, government agency it actually is, have definitely put a lot of store by cyber, haven't they? And actually have stolen a march mm. definitely on, on the Americans. So you do have Estonia in the early 2010s, and then you do have this rather... On the one hand, it feels sophisticated. On the other hand, it seems incredibly uh, low-tech, but definitely this this cyber interference yeah. in the general kind of politic of, of America using social media in, in the last uh, American election. Yeah, they're, they're, they're years ahead in, in understanding it. And I think that's because they're years ahead. Uh, they always knew about propaganda. I mean, you know, from, from their communist mm. days, they know, they understand it far better. And I think that because Putin, you know, is a former intelligence officer in the KGB, I think that f- from top down, there's been this direction that, yeah, you know, we will use this as one of our tools to further Russia's causes. And they do it not just, for example, hacking into the Democratic Party uh, apparatus during the US election, uh, allegedly and theoretically, in order to try to find some secrets, spill them, do damage to the Democratic Party candidate and make sure Trump gets in because they think they can do more business with him. That, that's the theory. They, have, they frequently uh, probe into the United Kingdom's Ministry of Defence and foreign um, secretaries building in the Foreign Office, etc., etc. And also they are very, very good at soft power propaganda with things like RT, formerly Russia Today, Sputnik News Agency and others, where they they open up branches within lots of different countries and then aim messages at them in, in different languages. I mean, all countries do this, you know, BBC World Service does it, but, it, but the BBC World Service is at a different standard of journalism and it doesn't set out every day to propagate a worldview. So that is just part of this cyber thing that they got. They got it years ago, and almost everybody else is catching up. Mm. All right, let's move away from cyber and Europe, and let's look at Russia's relations with the Middle East. Um, Obviously, Russian troops are in Syria, and Russia has leased a port in Syria. It's the the one kind of great... Uh, post uh, post Cold War triumph that Russia has uh, in effect a Mediterranean port again. So in 2018, with the conflict in Syria, where exactly are we with that uh, conflict? Why is Assad uh, their man? And um, what does he say about Russian influence in the Middle East going forward, Tim? Well, the Russians always had that warm water port at Tartus uh, on the Mediterranean coast of Syria, but they risked losing it because if Assad was their man and they'd mm-hmm. done the deal, what happens if Assad is overthrown with somebody who's hostile to Russia? At that point, you can lose your port. So that's one of the reasons they went into Syria to safeguard. The other one was, well, there's two other reasons. One is because of the sanctions against Russia on Ukraine. If you are interfering elsewhere, for example, in Syria, and you make yourself part of the solution, every time somebody comes to you and says, we need to talk to you about this, you say, yeah, we'll talk to you about this, but what about the sanctions on Ukraine? And the third reason was to plant themselves back in the Middle East, having been pretty much kicked out from the 70s and 80s, and then finally out of Iraq 
uh, in the early 2000s. But he's put them straight back in to the Middle East with a port, with an airfield, with troops, with influence. And so Russia is again more, more of a player. Now, they are... I wouldn't say they're struggling to extract themselves, but they have achieved what they went there to do. And I think they would now like to downgrade somewhat. And again, I think this is part of the talks that he's been having with uh, Mr. Trump. Um, neither of them really care about Syria. You know, they care about other things and Syria is simply a cipher for it. So I think they're looking how to downgrade and if this could lead to peace in Syria, that would be a good thing. I suspect it would be peace under the terms of Assad remaining in power. Uh, but after, what, eight years of war and the hundreds of thousands of dead, I think the imperative is to get the killing stopped. So just moving north of the Middle East, we have the situation in the Caucasus. Uh, Caucasus, okay. So, so a, I always struggle to say that. The Caucasus, Caucasus, Caucasus. There we go. Right, one of those will do. Um, and we have breakaway republics, um, Ossetia, um, etc., in Georgia. And we have um, a cold war between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Um, can you just give us a quick overview of the uh, of Russia's position in its kind of near, in its near neighbourhood? there um which regimes is it propping up uh which regimes does it actually have uh, a very you know a very obvious kind of cold war to and again geopolitically um should we be worried about it or should we just say this is russia's backyard let them get on with it i have the luxury of not being a politician and therefore saying unpalatable things which is that there are areas which i just don't think we're gonna we haven't got a candle so, you know, I think it would be madness for France or the UK to start involving themselves in the Azerbaijan-Armenia dispute. Uh, Georgia... But, Sorry, go on. Yeah, yeah, but Georgia is slightly different, isn't it? Yeah. Because Georgia did actually want to join NATO. Yeah, it did. And, and had it joined NATO and had Russia invaded it, and it did, at that point we'd have had to go to war with Russia over Georgia. Now, you, might, you can make a point, a case that perhaps we should have done. I, I wouldn't make that case. And Georgia is also strategically important because of oil pipelines and things. Mm -hmm. And it's on the Black Sea, etc., etc. But still, are we really, in 2018, going to go to war with Russia over that? I don't think we are. So Russia looks at the map, looks in front of it towards Western Europe, from where it has been invaded four or five times in the last couple of hundred years, and thinks, I want to dominate that land, that flat land in front of me. The only place it's got 100% rock solid left now is Belarus, which, which is between Russia and Poland. Um, Ukraine is a bit of a buffer zone, which they've taken the eastern Ukraine as the buffer zone. Then you move Somebody down. Somebody might even say that the Ukraine is a border. <laughs> well, it is, a, it is a kind of a new Cold War border. Move down into the bottom of oh, Ukraine. Tim, I was trying to... to be clever because that's what Ukraine means. Yes, I know. Oh, okay. lands, yes. Uh, although some Ukrainians deny that, but yeah, the, 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 the Russian word is borderlands, which translates as Ukraine. Um, the, the, the warm water port that they have in Crimea goes onto the Black Sea, which is their next sphere of influence that they must they want to control. If you don't control the Black Sea, how the hell do you get to the Bosphorus to get out into the Mediterranean? If you can't get into the Med, you can't get into the Atlantic Ocean. So that's how they view the world. And then 
looking downwards, you get to Turkey. Uh, that's a long-time competitor, both uh, economically and militarily through history. They live in a very tough, well, everybody pretty much lives in a tough neighborhood. And then you go into the stands, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and Russia seeks to keep its influence there to control that side. Because it's such a huge country, you know, it looks at its borders and thinks, right, we need to be safe here, 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 here. And all the stands put together, uh, they they feel give them a massive buffer zone between them and anyone else that might want to do them harm. And there's a huge competition going on between Russia and China about these stands at the moment. They've come to an economic agreement on it. There's no chance of them fighting each other. Um, that's pretty much, well, uh, you, look, we can go on and on, Royfield, Afghanistan, you know, their, their route through to Pakistan and another warm water port down there. You know, that's such a big country with so many borders that they involve themselves everywhere. The Arctic Ocean is another one. Germany is totally controlled by Russia. President Trump confirmed Europe's worst pre-summit fears by using the NATO stage to criticize allies, blasting Germany over a natural gas pipeline deal with Russia. It's very sad when Germany makes a massive oil and gas deal with Russia where you're supposed to be guarding against Russia and Germany goes out and pays billions and billions of dollars a year to Russia. German officials deny that the controversial Nord Stream 2 pipeline will allow Russia to exert undue influence over their country. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg tried to keep the peace. Uh, we are stronger together than apart. Um, but how can you be together when a country is getting its energy from the person you want protection against or from the group that you want protection? Because we understand that uh, when we stand together also in uh, dealing with Russia, we are stronger. Let, let's just end up um, with this gas pipeline because Trump made a point of haranguing Germany at the NATO yeah. summit last week, didn't he, about saying that they were dependent on the Russians because of this uh, gas pipeline. Uh, did Trump, was Trump speaking the truth? He was getting at a truth, which is energy security. And it is true that this pipeline will make Germany more dependent on Russia for its energy, turning the central heating on in the winter. And it's pretty cold in East Germany in the winter. You make them more dependent upon Russia. Now, they, the Germans would say, of course, we will still act completely independently in all our decision-making about, for example, Ukraine. But let's face it, push comes to shove. When you can turn the taps on and off in Moscow, that does give you a little bit of leeway when your relationship with Berlin, which is why the Baltics and Poland and the other countries are very nervous about this. It's why the Americans are a little bit nervous. So the Americans are actually building LNG, liquid, liquefied natural gas terminals in the Baltic to try and ship liquefied natural gas across to Europe, to the Baltics, and then pipe it down into the Baltic states and places like Poland so that they're not reliant upon Russia and don't come under Russia's energy security portfolio. Um, but Mr. Mr. Trump did have um, something in what he said. The manner in which he said it was deeply insulting, though. 
cool. And on that point, Tim, let's uh, wrap up the show by talking about our takeaways of the last seven days. Hello and welcome to The Things That Made England. I'm Roy Phil Brown and with me I have... David Crowther of the History of England. It was the best of time. It was the worst. She was the people's princess. We shall fight on the beaches. Oh, hey, man. These are the things that made England. We shall fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I have a body, but of a weak and evil woman. These are the things that made England. And a king of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! These are the things that made England. It gives wind in Churchill sails to say we can continue to fight on. Well, there cannot be many more famous events in English history than 1066. It hurts, <laughs> even now. Because 1066 is important. Yeah. But there's aspects of modern British culture which I think get overlooked. So I'm proposing that this week we do SCAR. For me, the English flag has in the past certainly become associated with factionalism and, well, hideous racist and far-right views and it's turned into a thing of disunity and almost xenophobia. The idea of this show is to decide on what things that make England as she is, the country that, despite it all, we feel lucky to be part of. Every week, one of us, that's David and I, will pitch an idea to the other to be designated as one of the things that makes England distinctive. Go and join our shiny new Facebook site where once a month we will post a poll where, should you so desire, you can make your own very suggestions for applications to the I Made England Award. So, without more ado, let's do it. Oh, there's only uh, one. Plucky little Croatia. What a shame. Beaten in an excellent final by France in the World Cup at the end of... A brilliant World Cup. Um, I've only been privileged to watch on television about ooh, 10 of them. It's up there in the top three, this one. Which World Cup was better than this? Uh, you saying it's top three. I'm saying categorically this is the best. 1970 is the first one I really remember. Um, Brazil beat Italy 4-1 in the final. It was a wonderful oh, festival. We, football in so wait a minute. Are we talking about finals as opposed to World no, no, Cup? No, I'm talking about finals. the oh, finals. Um, as a final? Yeah, it's up there with Brazil beating Italy 4-1 in 1970. Yep. Yeah. I'll, I, I'll, I'll give you that. But I thought you were saying that this was in the top three of World Cup finals. Because I think this is categorically the best in, in living his, uh, memory. I'm sure there'll be people who point you to Uruguay in the 1930. 1930. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. Uh, I just, no, I've been wrapped. My, I've just been glued to the TV. And it's funny how our memories just play, play tricks on us because, you know, I look, when I think back to my first World Cup that I can really remember is 1978 mm. and seeing those Argentinian shirts in colour. Yep. And it was just glorious. nights in Buenos Aires, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And and you think to yourself, the football's fantastic. <laughs> but actually, apart from a few dodgy results, World Cups are actually really quite turgid affairs in terms of the games. Yeah. And it's only the spectacular games that we actually remember. And the spectacular games are never actually the final because the teams are always too scared to lose. But that, that's why I, I put it in the top three tournaments because I think there was something like 68 games and I only missed three of them 
Um, and that was like Iran versus somebody, which, you know, even my enthusiasm waned at that point. I only missed three games in the whole month. And there was some some stunning football, some real romance, some great stories. The world did come together. And even if the game wasn't that good, you looked at the Peruvians. There was about 30,000 Peruvians went over to Russia. It's astonishingly warm, vibrant scene. So even if the game isn't that good, you're still getting something out of it. Mm. And I, I just thought that the entire month was absolutely brilliant. There were some incredibly memorable games. The, the, the Portugal... Spain 3-3, for example. Some great goals. And uh, it's just it's just heartwarming um, and a great antidote to politics. It's also the last World Cup that we might embrace this much, Royfield. Next time it's in Qatar, uh, mm. in, in closed stadiums with aircon um, uh, in November. And then the one after that, I think they're going up to about 48 teams, um, which I think is another mistake. So, oh, you know, I think we will mistake. look back at this as a real classic. No, I, I listen, I think you're absolutely right. I, and on a previous uh, Mid-Atlantic or with uh, pundits other than yourself, I did rail against 48 teams mm-hmm. and spreading it, the World Cup, over three countries. Uh, Amanda Marcotte of, of Salon fame, was, um, when, when we recorded with her a few weeks ago, the US, Mexico and Canada just won. Uh, that joint bid and she was extremely happy and I said it's all wrong if you're going to have a World Cup of 48 teams there is literally only about three or four countries that can ever hope to host it so hence you have to spread it over numerous countries and that feels anti-World Cup-ish to me you know the World Cup is supposed to go to one country I know we've had Japan and, and South Korea but that was an anomaly and I'll let that one go it's supposed to go to one country and it's a festival of football for that country which you know the whole world then looks in on and 48 teams and I actually had to look today at the format and the format is going to be do you know the format? Royfield Royfield, you've gone off on one let me end (laughs) nobody wants to know the format (laughs) by saying that nostalgia is not what it used to be hey that's a smart end. And thank you for reining me back and putting some discipline into this show, sir. So, Tim, um, we're going to wish you good health. But just before you go, tell us what you're working on at the moment. Um, I'm working on a... Uh, well, actually, I've been doing punditry all day on the on the Putin-Trump uh, summit. But I'm now reverting back to um, a series of short books on geopolitics that I'm writing for next year. Oh, just just whilst, whilst we're on it, I tell you a flag which I can't abide. Right, the flag of uh, the country of Georgia. And if there are any Georgian listeners, and I'm sure if I look look at the stats, there's going to be three or four downloads from Georgia. No offence to the the fine historic nation of Georgia, but it's a bit of a dog's dinner. You're just reminding me um, of, of flags when you're talking about uh, writing books, sir. Where, where where do you sit on badly designed uh, world world flags? Oh, I take a very dim view of them. As all right-thinking people would. Again, I, I love my Nigerian brothers, but I think the Nigerian flag <laughs> is utterly boring. It's green and it's white and that's it. But um, isn't, isn't the flag of St. George just like actually aesthetically dour? Yeah, it um, doesn't set my heart a flutter, uh, unlike Macedonia. You know, I would fix a bayonet and charge over a trench in defence of Macedonia <laughs> simply to follow that flag into battle. 
Uh, it sounds like you're about to go into one of these uh, Turco uh, Greek wars, Balkan wars, circa 1912 or something or other with, with a reference like that. So, um, where can people find you on the social, sir? That's kind of you. Um, you can find me on Twitter at itwittius. Uh, look upon my tweets, ye mere mortals, and uh, despair. Hey, awesome. And of course, you can find us Will, where we are at Mid-Atlantic Show. And of course, I am at Royfield. Um, folks, don't forget, you can also follow us on Facebook if I actually get around to sorting out the group. You can email me if you want to pose a question to me or say, dude, why don't you just get better at asking questions? If you want to do that, you can email me from royfield at gmail.com. See you all again very soon. Hey, that was awesome. Um, Thank you, Rifle. I do hope you cut it down. Why? <laughs> why? Because we were this, both rambling. Well, but you know what, though, right? This like is rambling, a, yeah. They, they, they kind of do. Griezmann delivers. Looking for the flick, and there was one. France have the lead. It may well have come off the head of Mario Mandzukic. Vida. Perisic. only needed a flick and Matuidi didn't really get one and ball claims from the French players we know it hit Ivan Perisic's hand it's just interpretation after that and he has given a penalty to France a very steady Griezmann looks composed and he was he was super cool France regained the lead Pogba and again, Pogba! Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.